0: This is the History of the World podcast, with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 17, The Rise of Macedon. unthinkable when you look back to the 5th century BCE that after 371 BCE the main power of Greece would be neither Athens or Sparta as both nations had dominated Greek politics for as long as anyone could remember and for as long as the Greek alphabet had been in use. Now it was the Thebans who were the ones who commanded the respect of their neighbours after the incredible defeat of Sparta at the Battle of Leuctra, the Peloponnesian League had been disassembled and the Messenian Helots had been freed. However, time and time again we see that the outstanding success of a nation is often attributed to the strong leadership of an individual. The Akkadian Empire under Sargon the Great, the Babylonian Empire under Hammurabi. The Egyptian Empire under Ramesses II. The Persian Empire under Cyrus the Great. The Athenian Empire under Pericles. The success of Thebes can be attributed to a period of leadership under one man who was called Epaminondas. Epaminondas seemed to be a man who understood that victory at one military exchange was not enough when attempting to position your nation in a position of greatness. And so we can recognize that same insatiable desire to consolidate and improve Thebes by continuing to campaign against Theban rivals and commissioning building projects to strengthen the national infrastructure. Epaminondas would ensure that Theban influence was strong in the Peloponnese by supporting the Arcadians. Who were always under Spartan hegemony previously. As we discovered in a previous episode, the young Prince Philip of Macedon was being held hostage in Thebes, and Epaminondas was granting him an education. This is a typical example of an ancient society attempting to influence another society by taking important members of their population or royal family and establishing. An emotional bond. So it was quite possible that Epaminondas was grooming Philip into accepting Thebes into his heart so that when he returned to Macedon he would always choose the Thebans over the Athenians or the Spartans as a friend of the Macedonians due to this childhood link. The importance of Macedon is that it was a great source of timber vital for shipbuilding, so having the Macedonians on side was an important thing to achieve. It was all the more vital when you considered a response to the new Theban domination of the Balkan Peninsula as well. Just over a hundred years previous, when the Achaemenid Persians invaded the Balkan Peninsula, it was the Spartans and the Athenians who stood together in defence of Greek lands but it was the Thebans who aligned themselves with the Persians. Now the Spartans and the Athenians both feared Theban expansion. Sparta had been put down by the Thebans and Athens would never be able to rebuild its naval fleet if the Thebans were controlling the Macedonian timber trade. So the Spartans and the Athenians decided that now was the time to renew their alliance over a 100 years after they turned their backs on each other following the Persian invasions. Once again, they would need to stick together to combat a common enemy in Thebes. Thebes would rally their allies in the Arcadian League and the two would meet in the Battle of Mantinea in 362 BCE. The Thebans would resist the attack of Sparta and Athens preventing their victory but many Theban leaders were killed including Epaminondas the great Theban leader himself the aftermath would indicate that this battle must have been huge the Spartans and the Athenians returned to their home cities to continue a comparatively humble existence the Thebans would never be the same again after losing their great leader Epaminondas. Philip of Macedon. The Macedonians were viewed as being somewhat barbarian and ill-educated by the academically advanced societies and pollies of the southern Balkan Peninsula. The Macedonian Prince Philip had been held captive in Thebes and was able to return to his homeland just before the confrontation at Mantinea. Just three years after the Battle of Mantinea, Philip was crowned King of Macedon, becoming Philip II in 359 BCE. Macedon was very unlike Thebes, Sparta and Athens in that it didn't have their political structure. The advanced urban societies did not exist in Macedon but Philip had learned much during his time in Thebes and was keen to try to bring the societies of Macedon together into a centralised state or at the very least a confederation or a league of city states. This was something that the societies of Thessaly to Macedon's south had tried to do in the previous decade unsuccessfully. Philip had the skill and acumen to influence his Macedonian neighbours without challenge, which is something that leaders of the southern Balkan Poles had not been able to achieve with it being full of competitive entities in very close proximity. Philip would not just be able to consolidate the societies of Macedonia, but he would also be able to assert Macedonian influence over many Thessalian, societies and many Thracian societies. Philip would introduce these people to a more modern and urbanised way of life with a strong and organised military presence. Around this time there was a kingdom called Epirus which was on the Balkan Peninsula facing the island of Corfu. We mention this kingdom as the home of King Pyrrhus I who invaded the Italian peninsula and Sicily in the 3rd century BCE, a story that we told in Volume 2, specifically Episode 9, about Punic history. At the moment, we're a few generations before that time. When Philip was crowned the King of Macedon, the King of Epirus was King Neoptolemus I. With Philip now attempting to gain as much influence as possible over the lands and neighbouring lands of Macedonia, he would look for a marital alliance with the Epirates. King Neoptolemus had a daughter called Olympias, and she would marry King Philip II of Macedon, cementing an alliance between the two kingdoms. Incidentally, Olympias would become the fourth of Philip's seven wives in a time when multiple marriages were quite regular for a monarch. In 356 BCE, Olympias would bear Philip a son called Alexander. In the south, things remained unsettled as the Thebans were still warring with the alliance of Sparta and Athens. Thebes had been closely linked to the Delphic Amphictyonic League, which was an association of societies who were loyal to the religious centre of Delphi, the home. Of the Oracle of Delphi. Many Thessalian societies would become embroiled in the conflict on the side of the Delphic Amphictyonic League and this would inevitably draw Philip in as he had vested interests in Thessalian politics as the Archon of the Thessalian League. Now the relationship between Philip and Athens was worse than ever because not only had Philip taken control of many of the Athenian trading opportunities that they had previously enjoyed when they were a great power, but now Philip was directly opposing them on the side of the Athenian opponents of the Third Sacred War. By 346 BCE the Athenians and their allies understood that they were not going to be able to defeat Philip and his allies and so they sought a peace agreement. However, Philip had the upper hand and appeared keen to consolidate a position of power and while the peace negotiations were taking place, Philip would take control of the strategically important city of Thermopylae which we learned about back in episode 11 as the city which stood by a mountain pass which protected the lands of the southern Balkan Peninsula from northern invasion. It was around this point that Philip would send for Aristotle the famous polymath who was at the time based on the island of Lesbos to educate his adolescent son Alexander. So the Athenians now had no position of power against Philip and Philip would actually start to extend his influence over Thracian lands which threatened Athenian interests in and beyond the Hellespont. Although there was supposed to be a peace treaty between Philip and Athens there was still an anxiety about Philip's behaviour in Greek lands, and especially in Athens, who simply saw Philip as someone gradually taking more and more power out of everyone else's hands. The modern city of Istanbul stands on the Bosporus, which is a strait of water which leads to the Black Sea. In order to reach the Bosporus by sea from Greece, you would need to travel through the Hellespont and across a small body of water Called the Propontis, the modern Sea of Marmara. The modern city of Istanbul was probably established during archaic Greek times and was called Byzantium. Byzantium was another highly strategically placed city due to its location on the Bosporus. Philip would besiege Byzantium, and the Athenians could not just sit and allow this to happen. Athens allied itself with Byzantium and would effectively and actively oppose Philip and Macedonia by doing so. Philip had to make Athens pay for their opposition, and so Philip would send an army south expecting assistance from the Thebans. However, the Thebans had recognised by now that the Macedonians were now a very real threat to the autonomy of all Greek speaking people and decided that they too would oppose their former allies and stand alongside the Athenians against the Macedonians. So an incredibly vital confrontation was inevitable and it could prove to be the most consequential battle of Greek history considering the sheer strength that the Macedonians had accrued versus the remnants of the battle-weary Poles of the southern Balkan Peninsula, which had been battling each other for the last 150 years. Philip and his son Alexander would lead an army south where they would meet the allied forces of Thebes and Athens along with many others at what would become the Battle of Chaeronea in August 338 BCE. Alexander was now an 18 year old man and in typical fashion as a potential heir to the throne was one of the army commanders. Chironia was further south than Thermopylae in the heart of Boeotian lands. In short, Philip's Macedonians would defeat the alliance of Thebes and Athens and this would effectively end opposition to Macedon. The Poles of southern Greece were exhausted, and Greece would be changed irreversibly. Philip would establish a new Hellenic League of Nations that would promise freedoms to the Poles of Greece, such as Thebes and Athens. In reality, Philip wanted to establish hegemony over the Poles, effectively disbanding the traditional Greek model of the Polis in favour of a Macedonian imperial set up, which would pull the resources of the Greek lands together, not least of all to feed the imperial ambitions of Philip against his next target, the Achaemenid Persians. Now it is definitely worth looking at what this meant to Greece and we can represent two philosophies through two different characters. In the past we have seen entities such as Athens and Sparta attempting to achieve hegemony over other lands by forming confederations such as the Delian League and the Peloponnesian League as means by which to control political affairs both at home and in foreign lands. It was always a precarious balance of diplomacy when looking at how much autonomy that members of these leagues would have in order to maintain their loyalty, so that they believed that they were in the most beneficial position to them, while at the same time understanding that they had a commitment to the League. Although the establishment of the Hellenic League after its first meeting at Corinth is often identified in history as the end of the existence of the traditional Greek polis, certainly in terms of a political theory, Philip really wasn't introducing anything too radical here and was just instigating a modern version of the traditional formation of a diplomatic league of polis, being actively policed by Macedonian administrators. The other character was an opponent of this transition, a man who stood up for the autonomy and integrity of the Polis, a man called Demosthenes. Where Plato and even Aristotle would be believers in the theory of the Greek polis, nobody was quite as outspoken as the Athenian statesman Demosthenes. Demosthenes hated Philip's ambitions to establish a hegemony over the Greek polis, believing that the Athenian citizens should stand up for that which they have collectively achieved over generations by bringing Athens into the modern age as a complex and well-structured and organised self-sufficient city-state. Followers of Demosthenes in Athens and indeed in other poles were inspired by his words, but it made very little difference to the reality of the situation and this was now the era of Macedon. Philip always held anti-Persian sentiments possibly dreaming of the glory of a meaningful victory against the Achaemenid Persians. He had always entertained Persian exiles and possibly even gained knowledge from them, but harbouring your enemies' exiles wasn't an unusual practice in these times. Philip knew that he would gain even more power by befriending the Greek-speaking societies of Anatolia, such as the Ionians, who had always been in the middle of political differences between the Balkan Poles and the Persians. If the Ionians were liberated from their Persian overlords, they would surely support Philip's ambitions, confident that they would be able to celebrate their Greek cultural heritage without Persian interference. What happened next was unforeseen. The capital of Macedonia was a city called Pella, It was where Aristotle travelled to when he tutored Philip's son Alexander. Alexander's parents, Philip II of Macedon and Olympias of Epirus, would have one other child together, and her name was Cleopatra. Now this is where the story gets a little bit fun. So strap yourself in and listen very carefully, as you may need to go back and listen again, if you don't get it the first time around. Cleopatra would be betrothed to her own mother's brother, a man called Alexander, and a man who shared the same name as her own brother. The wedding was planned to take place in the Macedonian capital of Pella, so it was a further bond between Macedonia and Epirus. So Cleopatra of Macedon was married to Alexander of Epirus in the year 336 BCE in a huge ceremony that attracted many Greek dignitaries. The wedding celebrations would move to the city of Ege, where there was a theater. The theater was a circular construction surrounding a stage called an orchestra. The raised wedge shaped cuny seating area surrounded the orchestra, creating a semicircular theatron for which people could sit and watch the performances. These kinds of theatres were a common construction in classical times, and such constructions certainly date back to the second millennium BCE Minoan societies at places such as Festos, which we mentioned back in Volume 2 during Episode 23 our episode about the Minoans, as the palace site where the mysterious Festos disc was excavated. The Macedonian king would normally be accompanied by seven Somatophylakes, who essentially were royal bodyguards. King Philip II himself would be approaching the theatre at Egi to continue the celebration of his daughter's wedding when one of his own Somatophiliches, a man called Pausanias of Orestes, shockingly stabbed Philip and killed him. The death of Philip II. The death of Philip II of Macedon is quite mysterious. The assailant, Pausanias, reportedly fled the scene, pursued by three friends of Philip's son, Alexander, who caught up with him and killed him. As we already know, homosexuality, particularly among the upper classes of society, appears to have been treated as the norm in many Greek-speaking societies. Pausanias was actually a former lover of King Philip II, but he was not just Philip's lover, but he was Philip's jilted lover. It is also possible that Pausanias was appointed as a somatophilax to pacify him after a sexual crime was committed against him by one of Philip's own courtiers. Everything just described would sound like enough of a motive for Pausanius want to murder King Philip so we could just move on however there is the small matter of King Philip's own wife Olympias mother of Alexander creating a great memorial for Pausanias now this seems incredibly strange considering that there appears to be no connection between Olympias and Pausanias However, Philip's successor was his son by Olympius Alexander, and Alexander showed a ruthless streak towards any potential rivals to his power right from the very start of his reign. So let's have a look at this situation from an alternative perspective. Alexander was a power-hungry individual and his legacy is something spoken about with enthusiasm to this very day. If he was ruthless by nature, then it is very possible that he felt that he was ready to take the Macedonian throne for himself, and this would mean pushing his own father to one side. If Alexander was responsible for his own father's murder, then it might explain why three of his personal friends were quick to pursue Pausanias, and why Alexander's own mother would ultimately celebrate Pausanias as she did. Nobody other than the three friends appeared to have witnessed Pausanias' murder, suggesting that the entire sequence of events was an elaborately planned and staged act, quite ironic considering that it took place at a theatre. The death of Philip II was something that was welcomed, in many Greek-speaking areas such as Athens who were being rallied by the outspoken statesman Demosthenes. Many of those who feared Philip's dominance of the Greek-speaking lands would see an opportunity to break away from their Macedonian ties and fight to regain what they had lost following the Battle of Kyrania. However, if they believed that things were looking brighter for them now that Philip was dead, they could not have been more wrong. Alexander Proclamation of Alexander as the new King Alexander III of Macedon was performed swiftly. Now such was the impact that Alexander would have in such a short time completely reshaping the entire map of the Near East that we will devote an entire podcast episode to him next week. However, we need to establish what happened in order to propel Alexander into historical immortality. At this point, the polys of the southern Balkan Peninsula must have been quite excited to hear of Philip's death as he was the man who had cast his mighty shadow over all of the Greek-speaking peoples for the last few years. However, Alexander was wise to this unrest and decided to head south to deal with it. Rebellion was to be expected. Alexander moved quickly to deal with this, using a combination of military and diplomatic means. His quick wits enabled him to get the Thessalians on his side after their initial resistance, and this would add some important elements to Alexander's army. Alexander would then consolidate his father's position of influence over the Delphic and League, and so despite Demosthenes' resistance to Macedonian overall, Athens realised that there was absolutely no value in defying Alexander. The Thebans were far more reluctant to cooperate a time when the Thebans were the dominant Greek speaking peoples was something in living memory, so they had been itching to challenge the new young king of Macedon. Alexander had attempted to work with the Thebans to find a solution, but it was apparent that the Thebans were not prepared to accept their role Alexander was not in any mood to let any part of the Greek-speaking world jeopardise his plan to have control over the resources of Greece. Late in the year 335 BCE Alexander would take an army of over 30,000 to Thebes and in the Battle of Thebes Alexander would destroy the city, sending shockwaves throughout the local area. The male population would be slaughtered and the remainder were consigned to slavery while the city itself was razed to the ground. This would be the end of Thebes as any kind of power and it would be an incredibly clear message to everybody that Alexander was not to be messed with. One area of Greek lands that took its own unique direction during this period was Sparta. Sparta had not been the powerhouse that it once was ever since the Thebans had defeated them at the Battle of Leuctra in 371 BCE. Since that time the Spartans did what they had often done more than most throughout their history and kept themselves to themselves. When King Philip II of Macedon had formed his Corinthian League after asserting his dominance over the south of the Balkan Peninsula, Sparta showed no interest in it. Rather than invade a very weak Sparta, Philip just subjugated its neighbours to deny Sparta the buffer states that it had often enjoyed the benefit of in the past during more fruitful and powerful times. However, now that Alexander had taken over the Macedonian throne, there was an unnerving aggression about the Macedonians that would have been difficult for Sparta to simply ignore. However, Alexander had bigger fish to fry than the Spartans as his focus would turn towards Anatolia. He had already amassed enough of the Greek military personnel that it would become more important to gain a firm foothold in Thrace. So, Alexander would face his next challenge as the hegemon of a Hellenic league which his father had worked hard to establish. The Rise of Macedon. Now, I'm going to stop the story there for two reasons. Firstly, I would like to focus on the next stages of Macedonian conquest over the course of the next episodes by looking more closely at the character and life of Alexander III of Macedon and the key battles of that conquest. We have also told the next part of this story already back in episode 2 albeit from the Achaemenid Persian perspective. I think it is quite interesting to see how the Macedonians were able to go from a bunch of barbarians to the effective rulers of Greece within the space of 25 years. I think to get a good perspective, you have to look at the wider picture. If we go back 100 years from the ascension of Alexander the Great, then this was a time of a great rivalry between Sparta and Athens, the two great rivals of the Greek-speaking world, who all others would look up to. 100 years before this, Sparta and Athens were the two entities who were making the most progress. However, this was also a time when petty local rivalries and civil disputes were the major news headlines, so to speak. After the world-changing invasions of the Persians, the Greek-speaking lands, and especially those of Sparta and Athens, would have surely felt an air of invincibility about themselves, and they would have felt militarily confident, to the point where they were not even intimidated by going to war with each other. Spartan and Athenian leaders alike would have been keen to emulate the great military forefathers who defeated the mighty Persians and may have been a little bit reckless with their resources. As the Spartans and the Athenians gradually depleted their own and each other's resources, so other small pollas such as Thebes and Corinth were able to compete for power against their larger neighbors. However, with so many competitive poleis within such close proximity to each other, more and more resources were being used to bolster each policy's position. Two things occurred at around this time. Places such as Thessaly, Macedon and Thrace started becoming places whose resources were becoming more valuable as the resources of the southern Balkan poleis were being exhausted. However, because the Macedonian tribes were not truly united as one, the comparatively politically stable poleis of the south could easily manipulate them. The Thebans made the fatal error when they decided to use the Macedonian royal prince Philip as a political hostage in order to keep the Macedonians on their side. By educating Philip as a hostage, the Thebans may have thought that they were instilling Theban loyalty into Philip's psyche, but they were actually educating a Macedonian prince in the successful methods of polis politics. Philip took this knowledge back to Macedonia and built the powerful kingdom of Macedon that would become a major player in Greek history, off the back of this knowledge. So the irony was that even though the intricacies of polis infrastructure gave Philip the ability to build a strong Macedonian identity, it was the vulnerability of the polis structure and the fact that it naturally encouraged individual cities to compete for resources that led to its ultimate downfall. By the time Alexander came to the throne, he was able to bully the Poles because he had been able to build the military prowess of a traditional nation-state similar to the Persians. The difference was that Macedonia was able to invade the Poles from a relatively close hub and that the Poles had exhausted each other to a point where they were unable to resist the Macedonians the Macedonians had been allowed to advance their culture unchallenged and very rapidly and this was thanks to Philip II. Their new Hellenistic culture rendered the polis system as an outdated system and a new future had arrived for the Greek speakers. Next time, we are going to look at the incredible world-changing lifetime of the outstanding son of King Philip II the new king Alexander III who would be known to history as Alexander the Great There we go another interesting episode there probably one that doesn't get spoken about enough Um, Philip II was an incredible king and he really did change the face of Greek lands forever. Uh, But we always talk about his son because of the absolutely incredible and phenomenal things that he did and we're going to look deeply into that next week. We're going to look at the life of Alexander the Great. But uh, for this week we celebrated Philip II of Macedon and that incredible achievement of actually subjugating pretty much all of the Greek poleis. So incredible work. Now we're motoring through the ancient Greek podcast episodes. Um, we've probably probably got about a handful to go, so we've got to look at Alexander the Great. We're going to have a, and a closer look at a couple of the uh, more incredible battles that he fought. Uh, and then we just need to look at the aftermath uh, what was left behind in the wake of Alexander the Great uh, when everything uh, was finished uh, with his lifetime and his conquests, that new Hellenistic culture and uh, and what became of those lands that he conquered. So uh, without giving too much away, um, we're going to find that out over the course of the next sort of five, six episodes of the History of the World podcast. Then um it will be time to look at ancient rome but before we do that we're going to um, have a couple of special episodes and uh, it's going to be a complete detour from what we're um what we're currently doing and uh, the reason for that we're going to do something we've never done before um particular patrons of the history of the world podcast uh, when they accrue a certain amount they can commission special episodes of their choice and um, a couple of people have already qualified um, for that privilege and um, there might be one more as well I'm not sure we'll have to wait and see what happens but certainly we're going to have episodes that take us to the early modern world and uh, probably to the medieval world as well so um, so we're going to be jumping around a little bit before we go to Rome. So that should be interesting. That should be very interesting. And quite exciting uh, to be jumping into a completely different area of the world and a completely different era. Uh, so looking forward to that. Talking of uh, patrons, um, anyone who does sign up uh, to be a patron at the Patreon website by going to the History of the World podcast historyoftheworldpodcast.com I've got that right, I think. Yeah, click on the Patreon link and it takes you through to the Patreon site. Uh, Those people who sign up to make monthly donations become lifelong members of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati. And I'm pleased to say that this week we have a new member of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati, his name is Mark Shay, So thank you very much, Mark Shay, and welcome to the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Now, we don't have a lot to report back to you on this week. It's been a very unusual week, and um, I can only really report um, from the UK, uh, where we're currently um, stuck at home, all of us um, just making sure that we keep the spread of this uh, pandemic uh, down to an absolute minimum. And as such, I think uh, many people are not commuting and um, therefore they're sort of missing out on their podcast time. So um, maybe um, people will have to do a bit of catching up once the world goes back to normal. Um, but in the meantime, don't be shy to send me a message and uh, get uh, get stuck into some of the interactive stuff on the website if you go to the uh, interact section there's stuff to do there there's a discussion forum, you can visit our social media pages so come along and, and excite some debate and um, as ever I'm always looking forward to hearing from you um, I have received a couple of emails this week but I'm going to leave them until next week um, uh, some of them allude to uh, reports that I would most like to um, post on the on the social media pages for everyone to enjoy so um, I'll tell you a little bit more about them next week but look out on the social media pages and I shall post the links on there anyway that's it for this week next week is a big week we look at the life of Alexander the Great and until we meet again take care of yourselves take care of each other do the right thing be responsible in this strange time do do the responsible things: Stay at home, stay safe, keep your hands clean and be careful. And uh, we'll meet up again this time next week. So take care and see you again. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.